My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Melanie Gale. Prisons are brutal places. Many people who are queer, trans, or both are already likely to be targets of social and state violence, particularly if they also happen to be poor and or racialized. And not only does this lead to heightened likelihood of imprisonment, but in prison, the violence from the state and from other people, and the marginalization that queer and trans people face, is only magnified. Gail is involved in the Toronto chapter of the Prisoner Correspondence Project, a grassroots initiative based there and in Montreal. They facilitate pen pal connections between queer and trans people on the outside and queer and trans prisoners, as well as doing public education work. Moreover, the project grounds its work in a long-term vision for a world in which prisons have been abolished. They argue that a prison-focused response to antisocial behavior depends on and reproduces the dehumanization of the people it targets, that it amounts to a form of attack on entire communities, and that contrary to what we are told, it just doesn't work as a way to make our communities safer, happier, healthier. I talked to Gail about the group, their work, and the radical political vision underlying it. Before we get started, though, a bit of housekeeping. Attentive regular listeners may have picked up on the fact that the episodes in the last few weeks have been recorded in a different way than previously, and this change has improved the quality of the sound and reduced the amount of external noise that makes it to the airwaves. I don't necessarily use interviews in the order in which they were recorded, however, and the one in today's show is the last in my supply recorded by the old method. So please pardon the few extra bumps and hisses, and you can look forward to cleaner recordings from now on. I spoke with Gail by phone. From Toronto. So my name is Mal Gale, and I'm a collective member of Prisoner Correspondence Project Toronto Chapter. I am an artist and poet and activist and a part of some different groups in Toronto that work on prison abolition. The Prisoner Correspondence Project is a collectively run initiative that started in Montreal. It coordinates a few different things. It's has a resource library on fiction and political information and harm reduction and things like that for pen pals, for inside members. It also coordinates a correspondence program between inmates that identify as queer, trans, LGBT, two-spirit, intersex, and as well as pen pals on the outside. And we also host events and teachings and things like that when we can. So I had some friends in Montreal that were working with Prisoner Correspondence Project in Montreal a number of years ago, probably five or six years ago, I first heard about it and was really interested in getting a pen pal. That's kind of how I started was that I wanted to correspond with someone and I got matched up with a pen pal and it was great. We spoke for a few years and we made a really lovely friendship and it was a really powerful, beautiful experience. That's what introduced me first to prison abolition. So I began learning a lot more about the prison industrial complex and Canadian prisons and the U.S. system. And so I just had a pen pal for a few years. And then when I heard about the Toronto chapter starting, it started uh, last October, so it's about a year. I was really, really interested in getting involved because I really believe in the work. So I got in touch with folks and then here we are. 
all of the members in the collective identify along the queer and trans spectrum, which is something that's important to us. And we have a few folks of color, and we're all kind of different. You know, we have a bunch of artists, and there's some law professionals, and there's students, and we all kind of have different skill sets that we bring to the, the collective. But yeah, we're just a kind of a variety of folks that have gotten together under this excitement of this new project. What kind of events have you done in the last year? In the last few months in particular, we hosted a fundraiser and a show with Queer Court Toronto, which is a group that coordinates cover band shows. So we hosted a cover band show for Prisoner Justice Day. So we had lots of acts and things like that, and then we raised a bunch of money for the collective. So we've done things like that. Also, some of our members have spoken on panels. So there was a radical orientation for University of Toronto, um, so-called disorientation. And so we had some of our members speak on panels around prisoner justice and things like that. So we try to get out in the community when we can. And how does your resource library get used? A few different ways. So we have resources for both pen pals on the inside, pen pals on the outside, and just folks that are interested in prison abolition and the project. Some of the ways that it works is that folks on the inside will get information about some of the resources that we have, mostly like the categories and genres and things like that, so that they get a sense of what we have, and then they can send resource requests to us. So, you know, folks might want to learn about paper drug use or smut or, you know, any kind of art, writing, things like that. So we get resource requests from folks on the inside, and then we can coordinate that. And then we also have more general info about the PIC. Uh, just a, a quick interruption to clarify for listeners. There are a few points in the interview where Gail talks about the PIC. Uh, that stands for the Prison Industrial Complex. And things like that for folks on the outside. So we have a listserv, and so if folks are interested in getting things, they can get in touch with us, and then we just collect those things and send people the info that they are looking for. Tell me about the correspondence program, both how it works, but also why it's important. The correspondence program part of it, I'm in love with it. I think it's just one of the greatest things, and it really, really excites me whenever we get new letters and we get to connect people. And, you know, it's the more, like, tactile daily work of the project is, you know, collecting the letters and connecting with other folks and reaching back to people. And so that's something that I really get a lot of joy out of. In terms of why it's important, a huge part of it is that folks on the queer and trans spectrum, both on the inside and the outside, just face so much state violence and so much discrimination and a lot of isolation and harm while they're in prison. And some folks are in for really, really long terms. A lot of folks are in solitary. And it's not always safe for those people to be out and to live their full identities. And so it's really important to kind of facilitate a bit of connection and a bit of community, even if that's just one other person. There's lots of statistics that show that folks on the queer and trans spectrum face a lot of violence, particularly in prison, a lot of transphobia. So it's just we want to create connection, create network, and create safety in whatever ways that we can through the Correspondence Project. And then in terms of how it actually works, we do outreach to prisons, and so send information about the project and a bit of a questionnaire to inmates on like what they're looking for, how they identify their interests and things like that. And then it's kind of a two-part. So, so occasionally we hold letter-writing evenings, which are these really lovely events where we get together with interested pen pals on the outside and bring letters from folks on the inside and then share them and people match themselves up with pen pals based on their connection with the person. It happens that way and it also happens if someone can't come to an event that an outside pen pal will say, oh, I'm looking for these particular things or I'm interested in talking to this kind of person and then we'll have the knowledge base of, oh, well, this person in, you know, X prison is interested in 
Tell me a little bit more about the violence that queer and trans prisoners face on the inside, but also the state violence that many queer and trans people experience on the outside, thinking specifically of the kind of mainstream LGBT narrative that often poses the state as a kind of savior. Uh In terms of the violence that queer folks face on the outside, I do think there is this really strong narrative of, I don't want to say assimilation, but for lack of another word, you know, marriage equality and things like that, that look to, I suppose, equalize queer folks with the general public, the general heteronormative folks and you know, ideas of like certain kinds of ways of living in capitalism and marriage and relationship ways and children and different ways of identifying are that that's what we're hoping to get to, you know, like that we're hoping for the middle class dream and things like that. And so there isn't always a lot of state support or interest at all in any kind of, you know, alternative or radical lifestyles. And a lot of those identities are often criminalized. And so some of the things that we, you know, as a collective work towards and talk about are you know, one of the circumstances that folks face in particular are that rates of homelessness and drug use and poverty and things like that are often a lot higher for queer and trans people. And, you know, living in those circumstances when there isn't a structure of having access to housing, having access to getting a job, even social assistance, especially in Ontario, is super low. And that can often lead to folks turning to, quote-unquote, crimes for survival. So, you know, sex work and theft and drug use and loitering and sleeping outside and things like that. And trans folks are arrested for not having the proper ID, and particularly trans women are often profiled and are often falsely arrested. And so, you know, these kind of, quote, crimes of survival that folks that are disenfranchised turn to ends up landing them in prison, and then the violence becomes, a, you know, a whole other level. Within prisons, the state violence is pretty magnified, so queer and trans people represent a disproportionate number of the people that are incarcerated. And, you know, while in custody, segregation procedures often exclude the needs of trans people and take them of their dignity and their identity and their ways of survival and, and just having access to live themselves as whole people. Often, once inside prison, trans folks are denied access to their hormones and trans-specific health care and are forced conform to state-sanctioned gender norms. A common occurrence is that trans folks are gender-segregated to the opposite or to something outside of how they actually identify, which is just stripping of a whole self. And if that's your first encounter in prison, then like you're kind of already not your whole self. You're already not able to exist in a way that feels safe for you just off the bat. And they're often targeted by correctional staff and other prisoners for with sexual and other forms of violence and are often isolated and marginalized. And this violence and isolation is compounded by other forms of marginalization, such as being racialized, indigenous, poor, disabled, young, folks that don't speak English, folks that are chronically ill, facing mental health issues. And so, you know, all of those things combined when there's no structure or interest in support or rehab and things like that, just the violence becomes pretty heavy and becomes pretty constant for folks. This correspondence program is to alleviate some of the isolation and just being able to have a conversation with somebody. And so, you know, we have a few pen pals that I've had over the years. And, uh, you know, one of my pen pals is in solitary. And we talk about a lot of things, but our correspondence together is super important to him. And it's the reading that he gets because he doesn't always have access to books or anything else. And so that connection is really, really important. And there is a huge responsibility on folks on the outside to take on what they can and to really respect these relationships because though our lives on the outside may be filled with work and kids and all these other things, 
there's just not access to that kind of thing on the inside. And so, you know, it's primarily to reduce isolation. And part of that reducing isolation is building community. Folks aren't always able to be out in their letters, but, you know, in whatever ways that you can communicate in those ways, to know that there's someone else that sees your identity and sees who you are and appreciates you and cares for you and supports you for who you are is extremely important in terms of even mental well-being in prison. So situate for me the project in kind of the broader context of abolitionist politics, explaining to the listeners what abolitionist politics are and how the PCP fits into that. So we work from an abolitionist perspective, which among other things means that we don't advocate for prison reform, but more work to address the root causes of incarceration by building support systems to prevent reincarceration, namely. And there are lots of roots of the PIC and criminalization of queer communities, including legacies of racism and colonialism and slavery, eugenics and things like that. And a huge core problem is this, as we spoke about before, is the isolation and complete lack of support for these communities, particularly inside but also outside of prison. So part of what what we do in terms of the larger picture of abolition is working on a bit of a micro level and preventing these kind of isolations and loose access support by creating the central connections that we talked about and providing the resources, educating other folks and expressing our support for prisoners. Movements happen by small increments, you know, looking forward however many generations it happens into society that doesn't operate kind of on this penal system. And so that's like a part of how we interact with abolition as a whole. There are a couple of different kinds of responses to abolitionism that I'd like to hear your responses to. There's the mainstream response, oh, that's ridiculous. But there's also a response that I've encountered in lots of more lefty spaces that is very sympathetic, but that even in an ideal context, there would still be minimal need for a carceral response to some kinds of antisocial behavior. Uh Could you respond to both of those? In terms of the more general, this is ridiculous idea, I mean, that's something I come up against a lot in interactions with my family and other folks in my life that are more mainstream or whatever of like, oh my goodness, how can you be talking to prisoners? And you give them your real address and like all these kind of things and a lot of fear. We're really, really cultured to fear folks that act in any way outside of the norm of how we see it. And so as soon as someone commits a quote-unquote crime or you know, acts in a violent way or anything like that, they lose their personhood. And I think that's a huge piece of the mainstream idea is that we close our receptors to folks as soon as they break a law or something like that that we see as irretrievable behavior. I think it is just a, you know, an idea of folks are people first, people that are incarcerated, people that, that are drug users living on the street and things like that. They're not monsters. And I think that's a conversation starting point that I would have with folks that are really dismissive. And also to point out that it's not working. <laughs> I think that's a huge thing that we can say is our penal system doesn't actually benefit anybody because there are so many instances of reincarceration. You know, and the, the idea is largely that folks go to prison and either they're in there because they're supposed to be in there and they're going to stay in there forever because that's what they deserve or that it's good for them because maybe they'll get to take some college courses or they'll get rehab in some way and they'll be better for society when they come out. And I think that's a really fantastical notion that a lot of mainstream folks think about prison and so when they're met with the idea of abolition then I think the fear for them is complete anarchy you know that there's going to be crime just all over the place and people causing harm all over the place because prisons are where that is dealt with and so I think my initial response would be just to take a step back and for us to look at if the way that we're actually doing things is functioning and to point out that I don't think that it is and that there's some proof to show that it, it isn't really working and in terms of you know, more activist folks or lefty folks or politically savvy folks, if you want to call them. You know, it's complicated because I think that's 
and, and folks who aren't inside, you don't hear from them again. For example, you know, if we're building a movement or something and there's an action and we're, you know, we're really, really fighting for this action and really community building around it and for some reason someone gets arrested and they get put away. What I've seen a lot is that our community forgets about them. And as lefty and as savvy as we are, even though we're trying to battle with the state or change the state, we can kind of succumb to the frameworks that are around us. So, I do understand folks' apprehensions or the belief that we're never going to be able to get away from it and that in the future we're going to need some kind of, like you said, like carceral system. And I can understand where that's coming from, but I think to those folks I would say, you know, again, to like look at the proof and to look at the ways that things aren't working and to really, really, you know, it's not just about someone breaking a law and going to prison. It's so much more nuanced. It's so much more based on the intersectionalities that we talked about, you know, and like classism and racism and poverty that create the circumstances for folks to not be able to exist within the quote-unquote law. And so to those folks, you know, I would say that maybe in the next 15 years or in our lifetime, we're not going to get rid of prisons. And I don't think that's a failing at all. I think that part of what I really appreciate about our collective and about Prisoner Correspondence Project as a whole is we do look pretty long-term. We're building the groundwork now for the hope that this work just keeps building and keeps growing. And then, you know, in the future, we do start to realize and we do start to break a bit apart of these huge cemented systems. So you mentioned... Um, that Prisoner Correspondence Project is based in Canada, but many of the pen pals are based in the United States, but you're working on developing connections within Canada. Tell me a bit about why that's been the trajectory, but also my sense is that there's less organizing happening from an abolitionist perspective in Canada than in the United States that's grounded in working class communities of color, that there's quite a bit of that in the United States, but it's at least less visible here in Canada. So talk about some of that national difference stuff. There's stereotypical differences between Canada and the U.S., but I do think, especially thinking about activism and political work, there are some fundamental differences in the ways that our histories have been narrated to us. You know, I don't think that it's a simple matter of one country having worse or better political systems than the other, but I do think that there's a more documented history of abolition work and of working class communities fighting against the state in the States. So as I said, I think a part of it is knowledge and that access to knowledge around the PIC is a bit more prevalent from the States. And I think that here in Canada, there's a lot of bureaucracy around keeping some of that info and keeping access to prisoners a bit more guarded. And so that can make it a bit more difficult sometimes. This is just, again, my perspective, but I think a lot of it is pretty heavily based in racism towards Indigenous and Native folks who are disproportionately incarcerated in Canada, and just the general motivations of invisibility that the state has in Canada of keeping the harm inflicted on Native communities and Indigenous communities in Canada really secret. And so, you know, the legacies of missing and murdered Aboriginal women and so many ways that we as a country have been harmful to those communities. I feel like it starts from an early age, and like we don't learn about those histories, and so as we become, as we shape ourselves into activists, we don't always think of those communities first, and then maybe don't always see the need for abolition or something like that, because maybe our problems don't seem as bad. I think for us, a lot of our work has been in the state for the past little while, but we're really, really interested in doing inreach in Canadian prisons, partly to break open some of this silence and to bring to light some of the pretty treatment and things like that that are happening in Canada and, you know, just super jails that are being proposed all over the place and things like that. I wonder, too, if part of how it stays hidden in Canada is 
the narrative, even in lots of activist type spaces, I mean, white dominated activist type spaces of anti-blackness being a U.S. thing. And so the struggles of black communities in Canada get erased in that way. I think that's a huge and really valid point. That is likely something that we talk about in the collective a fair amount is the ways in which our work, if we're not careful, can perpetuate that kind of racism and that kind of invisibility. I do think that's an extremely significant oversight in some of the more white-centered communities, activist communities in Canada. I'm a black person myself and have really been like disappointed and sometimes really shocked at some of the anti-black racism that I've been seeing and facing and hearing about and living in active communities in Canada. And I think it's really easy to, exactly what you said, is to say that it's a U.S. problem and that we don't have that kind of racial profiling, but we absolutely do. You know, we have the cards that police, Toronto Police Services in particular, can get. It's a very similar system. It's just we don't know about it as much. We don't think about it as much. And we have this really strong legacy, like Canada has this really strong legacy of being more humanitarian and things like that than the States. And I do think that those kind of narratives, even if they are from the super, super mainstream, I think they really trickle down to our activist communities. And I think that if we're not encouraged, as I hope that the Prisoner Correspondence Project, like I hope that our work is doing this, we're not encouraged to challenge some of these really comfortable ideas of, you know, we're more humane, we don't have that really intense anti-black racism, you know, we don't have those really rough neighborhoods or, you know, whatever folks want to call it, but, you know, there is significant discrimination and poverty and real issues facing folks in Canada, and I think that some of the work that both Montreal and Toronto are trying to do is to clarify some of those things, and so, you know, some of the things that we talked about for Prisoners Justice Day, there was an event held at the Don Jail in Toronto, and I think things like that and bringing visibility to the real places and the real people that face this kind of incarceration, this kind of dehumanization in Canada is a huge part of our work, and it's full work, but it's huge, you know. So are there chapters in other places or just in Montreal and Toronto at the moment? Montreal and Toronto at the moment for the Prisoner Correspondence Project, and it'd be pretty exciting, and I think in... You know, in my personal excitement for the project, I'd love to see chapters open up throughout Canada because I do think that each province or city has really specific needs in terms of talking about incarceration. And I'm in southern Ontario, and so there's particularly racialized communities that are disproportionately policed here. But farther west or even farther north, it's a completely different setup. And I think that I'm not personally interested in speaking as an expert or something like that and like going to different communities and saying, oh, this is the kind of work that you need to do. But the Montreal and Toronto Project continue to do outreach work and continue to make these issues visible. I do think that it will start to be picked up in other places. And I'm excited for folks in their own communities to start to like continue to do this work, you know, because it's so many communities, such working class and racialized communities all over Canada that are fighting back against the state. And these are just two of the chapters that that we're talking about today, but I know that, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on throughout Canada. And if there are people in other communities who are interested enough to be thinking about what they can get going in their own communities, what kind of initial steps do you think would be useful for people? I think networking is super important, and I think that a huge part of how we found our feet in Toronto was a lot of the work that folks in Montreal had done, and I think that's how movements can keep going and keep growing and so if there are folks in other cities and other provinces that are interested in starting up something like this get in touch with us get in touch with Montreal and let's start having conversations about what it's like in your communities let's start having conversations about the particular issues or the particular invisibilities that are being faced there and to really share resources I mean I think a huge part of 
different aspects of activism is feeling like we always have to start from the beginning and that if it isn't happening then maybe it can't happen or maybe it's because no one's interested or maybe you know things like that and I don't think that's true I think there's so much resilience and there's so much fight and struggle and strength all over this country you know let's talk to each other let's meet and share what we're we're working towards and what things are you looking forward to uh, with the Toronto chapter in the next six months or year it's been a really wonderful year, I have to say, for the correspondence in Toronto. It's only been a year, but we've seen so much change and growth in our collective and in our location in the community. And so I look forward to more connections with different organizations and folks in Ontario. I'm really looking forward to more Canadian inreach and to connecting with more Canadian inmates, for sure. Really excited about that, and I'm looking forward to that happening. I'm also looking forward to our collective growing. We have some core members now. But something that we do talk a lot about is, you know, our representation and how is our collective reflective of the folks that we're working with. And so we do have conversations around collective membership and wanting to invite more folks to be a part of the collective, especially folks that, you know, are more specifically affected by the PIC and really welcome members that can bring their individual experiences. And a lot of our collective is white folks right now, and so we do have a pretty ongoing conversation and dialogue around shifting that and around what that means in terms of the work that we do and how do we really, really stay mindful of how our makeup is going to affect the work that we're trying to do. And so I'm really looking forward to the next year of us getting a bit bigger and of us having a bit farther spread locally. Little things like getting space and having a hub for us to be able to work together and to be able to invite people to come and to doing more events and to doing more speaking in classes and things like that. You know, we have some upcoming possibilities, things that we're trying to figure out in terms of talking to new folks around around the PIC. And so I'm really excited for our last year. I'm excited for the next year coming up as well. I think something I do want to say is that for me anyway, if you're thinking about it, folks, and you feel like you have the capacity, being a Tantal is one of the most wonderful things one of the most wonderful connections and rewarding things that I've experienced in my life and feel like I've really gained wonderful new friends that I think maybe 10 years ago in my activism I wouldn't have thought that I could connect with. And I think there is a huge barrier around morality and law and crime and I've learned a lot from working with the Correspondence Project and I've learned a lot from my pen pals. And if you're interested, think about it and get involved. And another thing is that, you know, we're not experts. We're folks that are learning and that are making mistakes and that are trying to shape the ways that we do this work and that it's completely possible in any community for this to happen and that it's just that it's happening in these two spots now. You have been listening to my interview with Melanie Gale of the Prisoner Correspondence Project's Toronto chapter. To learn more about the project as a whole, you can visit their website, which looks like it's largely maintained by the Montreal chapter, at prisonercorrespondenceproject.com. That's all one word, prisonercorrespondenceproject.com. Or you can search for the page of the Toronto chapter on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.